One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we reflect on news that Britain has not yet made a final decision on whether to send tanks to Ukraine, and hear how Kyiv's comedy circuit has evolved over the last seven months. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 10th of January, day 321. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and Ukrainian comedian Anton Timoshenko. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front line. Well, hi Claire and hi everybody. So let's go east, Donetsk. You've got the town of Bakhmut, which has been the scene of very fierce fighting now for, for quite a number of uh, quite a number of weeks, actually, going into months. Today's Ministry of Defence, British Ministry of Defence, daily uh, intelligence update says that, that, that Bakhmut is there assessing as the main immediate operational objective of Russia. That's their words, main immediate operational objective. I mean, there's a few caveats in there if you say main and immediate, but they're you know, obviously highlighting it as, a, as an area of great uh, concern. They're saying that, that Russia is trying to envelop from the north or having some limited success closing in from the north. Uh, Solidar, oh, sorry, this is uh, to the north of, of Solidar, and this, and this is 10 k's north of Bakhmut. But that, that whole area of the east of Donetsk is getting um, a, a huge amount of attention from both sides uh, recently. So Russia has made tactical advances into Solidar, back, back, which I say is, is the key to the town of Bakhmut, which is seen as a, a main logistic route into that area of the Donbass. And also MOD is saying that... Um, that Solidar is is uh, the location of a number of entrances to the underground salt mines, which they think are disused. Well, they are disused, but there's there's reportedly hundreds of kilometres of uh, disused salt mines under the whole district there, and both sides seemingly concerned that whoever controls those mines and the access to them uh, will be able to to infiltrate forces um, into into the rear of the of the opposing of the opposing force. So clearly. Uh, of great concern. However, um, Ukraine seems to have 
albeit there have been these tactical advances to the north of Soldar. Ukraine has got good defence in depth around the area and control over the majority of the supply routes into Bakhmut and Soldar from from the east and the south. Um, but it's it's an area of, of great concern. Now, Soldar is also the location where two British aid workers have gone missing. So Andrew Bagshaw, who's 48, and Christopher Parry, who's 28, were uh, providing humanitarian support. They were last seen on January the 6th around uh, Solodar, not been seen since. The uh, Ukrainian uh, foreign ministry is is you know, actively seeking information on their whereabouts. The British foreign ministry is helping the families. This is obviously a, a very concerning uh, development, not only for, for the individuals concerned and their families, but also whether or not this is, if they are if they've been taken as some sort of yeah, I mean we've seen this before with the with the uh, with various people fighting for Ukraine, um, albeit I'm not suggesting these these two individuals were in any way taking up arms, but Russia is very keen to show these show individuals who are not Ukrainian as Western spies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So obviously we're very concerned about these these two individuals and um, and what may or may not uh, happen to them if they are in in Russian hands. But we will keep keep tracking keep track of that story and let you know. Staying in Solidar, so the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, is suggesting or is saying today that um, that the Wagner Group, so the Russian mercenary group led by and funded by Yevgeny Prigozhin, known as Putin's chef because he's got a number of lucrative catering contracts for the for the Kremlin. Um, so Prigozhin, he's using the limited success in Solidar, which we think is mainly an area of Russian Wagner Group involvement, using the limited success there to boost uh, Wagner's reputation as the only effective fighting force um, that Russia's got in the field right now. Now, they are bigging up uh, claims that, that Solidar's taken and that um, they're going to encircle Bakhmut. That is all very speculative. That's not backed up anywhere else and certainly not backed up, like I say, by, by the MOD Defence Intelligence Estimates. Um, but yesterday, Prigozhin did say that it's exclusively Wagner Group units taking ground in the area and says that they're, they're in fierce battles for the city administrative building. Now, certainly, it does seem that there are fierce battles going on in the town and around the, the admin building, but um, whether or not it's exclusively Wagner Group and whether or not they are having or how much success they are having is, is um, well, it's still it's still very much in, in the air. But, you know, we've said it before, Prigozhin and uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, they, they use any tactical successes on the ground to try and further their political ambitions. So that may well be why, why Prigozhin is going going loud here, because clearly there's, um, there's no one has the decisive edge at the moment in the area. So that may well be why, why Prigozhin is, um, is just sort of pushing the, uh, any, any tactical success uh, that, uh, that they can. Um, separately, Nikolai Petrushev, who's the um, secretary of, the Ru- of Russia's Security Council, uh, he spoke to uh, R- Russian state media uh, saying that actually, as we've, as we've mentioned before, yeah, that, but he's put it in, in hard, hard words here. He says um, that basically that Russia is fighting Britain and the US, not, not Ukraine. He said, quote, the events in Ukraine are not a clash between Moscow and Kiev. This is a military confrontation between Russia and NATO and above all, the United States and Britain. The Westerners' plans are to continue to pull Russia apart and eventually just erase it from the political map of the world. We are not at war with Ukraine because, by definition, we cannot have hatred for ordinary Ukrainians, unquote. I mean, we've said this before. This is the narrative they're trying to push, that they can't be losing. They can't be having their 
elbow handed to them on a plate by little old Ukraine. It's got to be the big nasty NATO and the US and Britain and you know, everyone else, France, Germany, the, the European members and um, pushing them back because they can't be losing to to Ukraine. It's got to be there's got to be more to it than that. This is the the framing they've tried for for a while now, which we we assess is is part of the reason why there's certain caution from Western capitals to get too heavily involved. It's not well. It's partly the escalatory uh, provocative line that we've that we've mentioned before about the specific weapons, but also the more that this looks like it's it's the the West, i.e. external support, because there's obviously other countries outside of the West, Australia, New Zealand, for example, who are. Who are um, who are contributing here to support Ukraine? But you know, generic term, the West. The more the, the West is seen as as a as a a coherent formed body fighting uh, Russia, then it just plays into that narrative, and that might be part of the reason why Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, over Christmas was making some very firm comments. Um, never been never wavered in his support for Ukraine and the and the the requirement for Russia to be ejected from the country. Um, but he's not committed NATO and not sought to commit NATO into the fight, leaving it much more for the individual capitals, individual nations to take to take their actions, albeit through collective collective work such as the Ramstein contact group, the, the group of, of donors coming together, the next meeting happening next week, I believe, of Ramstein. Um, not always in Ramstein, the, the U.S. air base in Germany, but that was where it, where it first started, where Lloyd Austin, um, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, started the, the process. But there's been um, a number of these meetings. It's known as the Ramstein Contact Group. But speaking of NATO, so Jens Stoltenberg had um, the President of the European Council and European Commission today, so Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen, um, in town where they um, they signed the uh, the, the third um in the, the sort of series of, of partnership agreements between NATO and the EU, trying to trying to get a closer a closer um, well, I wouldn't say union, but pl- closer cooperation between NATO and the EU as a, as a, a in a defensive uh, as a defensive body. And Soldenberg said, "We are determined to take the partnership between NATO and the EU to the next level." Um, and uh, yeah, so they, they, there was a news conference today earlier this morning. They've signed a document. Um, it, it just sort of brings them closer together, joint collaborative working, things like cyber, training, um, support for external um, countries such as Ukraine. I mean, this is I mean, open for debate, of course, but but I think this is a long way away from some kind of European army. Um, I don't think the EU w- would be able to do that. I don't think the, the individual capitals, less perhaps France, maybe Germany, would be, would be keen for that. But I really can't see that happening. But closer defence and security cooperation between NATO and the EU in certain areas... Um, Counterterrorism, cross cross border illicit illicit financing, organised crime, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I think it's is um, it's probably a good thing. And uh, yeah, I'll take a little pause there. Thanks. And over to you, Francis. What can you tell us about updates on the diplomatic front? Well, thanks, Claire, and uh, good afternoon to our listeners around the world, and and welcome back, Dong. It's good to be sharing the airwaves with you again. Uh, starting off on what I know was the main subject on the podcast yesterday, but there has been an update in this space uh, in this morning, so I thought I'd bring it up again, which is around these Challenger tanks, which Britain may or may not be about to offer Ukraine. And the update I have is that Britain has not yet made a final decision on whether to send tanks to Ukraine. That's according to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's spokesperson. Now, as I say, it comes on the back of considerable consideration and discussion around this in the last 48 hours or so about whether these 
these uh, tanks will be sent to Ukraine. I won't go into all of the details about the significance of that because I know it was covered so comprehensively yesterday. But nonetheless, for many, many people, this would be considered a game changer if these tanks were delivered. Now, admittedly, there wouldn't be very many of them. But the reason it would be considered so significant is that it would act like a perhaps like a sort of snowball that would trigger an avalanche in terms of other countries that have also said that they are willing to support um, sending more high-tech weaponry, including tanks, to follow suit. So I'm thinking of of Germany, of France, of Finland, who have all started to line up, it feels, about saying that they're willing to go even further and offer these um, more advanced tanks. But uh, they're waiting for the for the moment that somebody makes the first move. And it felt for a little while like it was going to be Britain, but they have said this morning that they are not yet made a final decision. But I think we'll be monitoring that very, very closely. And I was very struck as I spoke last week about James Cleverley's remarks when he was, seemed very, very keen to emphasise that Britain was ready to act in accordance with what other countries did and were, were talking about in this area. And I think there's just a little bit of a sense that I got from reading the way he phrased it, that very, very keen that Britain is not seen as as following on the coattails of, say, um, France and Germany, but wants to be seen as as the leading uh, power in Europe that's sort of steering the debate around weaponry in Ukraine. And I think, as I say, that that just sensing things over the weekend, that I would not be surprised if we were to see some sort of announcement over the coming days. Now, that is by no means a guarantee, but I'm just saying that, that, that there's another concern here for Britain, which is that having been since the very beginning of the of the war one of Ukraine's earnest and strongest supporters does it want to face the political consequence of not being seen as that in this next phase and so there are political consequences of them delaying on that decision and of course there are also political consequences they do proceed with that decision i think it's important to emphasize that you know we're, we've we've hardly got hundreds and thousands of tanks just waiting and sitting in storage to be used you know these are high-tech weaponry and if they were to be given to ukraine you've got to make sure that that they can be utilized successfully and also that you're not giving all of your tanks away to a foreign army um, because of course if things were to escalate in a damaging direction then you want to have them for yourself so these are really really big decisions and I think it's important that we don't see everything in the context of obstinacy from Europe or from Britain is that these are big decisions um, but nonetheless I do think that the ground is starting to shift on this particularly as I say and most significantly I would argue in Berlin and in Paris as I touched on last week just also staying in this kind of military space, but also blending and bleeding into the diplomatic. Italy has also said that there are some technical issues which are delaying their supply of air defence systems to Ukraine. They have, of course, have been quite vocal, and much more so than people expected since the new Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney, became to power recently. And uh, as I say, I don't think we should read this in any way as them deliberately delaying offering support. In fact, the reason I mention it is the fact that they're making it clear that they're apologising for the delay in this air defence system that was meant to be delivered to Ukraine. And this is, a, as I say, something that, that comes as a real shock. Italy was considered one of the weaker powers with regards to support for Ukraine. And yet, under Giorgio Maloney, they have been robust, to put it mildly, despite the fact that Silvio Berlusconi, who is part of her coalition, calls himself one of Putin's best friends. Um, so it's, it's, it is quite striking. Indeed, she has emphasised that Ukraine has Italy's full support. So I just mention that because, again, it is a sign of, of quite how robust I think Italy has been, the fact that they've apologised for the delay and indeed are emphasising the fact that um, they 
do not want this to be the case and to want to get that weaponry there as soon as possible. Um, in terms of other news, Don was talking there about the remarks of Nikolai Petrushkev and uh, he's already summarised them, so I won't go into, into more detail on them, but I think it's just worth us reflecting a little bit on his character. I mean, this is one, of course, of those men, if regular listeners who've been with us, with us since the beginning will recall that he was one of those who seemed to have a more sceptical line about whether the invasion should go ahead. He was one of those in that cringe-inducingly awkward televised meeting in the Kremlin where uh, they, the intelligence chiefs and others were there um, supposedly to put forward their views to Putin's before he made a final decision. In fact, it was clear what Putin's decision was and he just wanted to make these leaders sort of swear, leaders of their effective departments swear allegiance to what his line was. So he started this war as I think a little bit more of a, of a sceptic in the sense that he wasn't sure if the timing was right and indeed I think he, he uh, angled to try and have another round of negotiations with uh, President Joe Biden, interestingly not uh, President Zelensky. Uh, but uh, then, of course, the invasion began. And ever since then, he has really doubled down. I mean, he's not just a hawkish on matters of Ukraine. He's in the conspiratorial mindset. I mean, he truly does uh, believe in all sorts of narratives, which to us in the West will seem just frankly, utterly bizarre. But those who are um, deeply immersed in Russian telegrams and uh, Russian social media will be familiar with conspiracy theories about the US harvesting the organs of Ukrainian orphans, uh, US trying to seize Siberia from Russia playing into all of these narratives that Don was talking about, which is this idea that the West is all out to uh, destroy Russia and that Ukraine is just being used as a tool in that. Now, the concern, of course, about Petrushkev is the fact that he has been around for a long time. He ran the FSB from 1999 to 2008. He's one, Of course, that's one of five jobs in which he's directly succeeded Putin. And indeed, some people are seeing him as a possible successor to Putin if things were to go awry for Putin. But this is the classic example of some of the concerns that I spoke about last week, which is that if you were to if Putin were to be ousted, that he's the kind of man you're going to get instead. And as I say, he is extreme on matters of Ukraine. I mean, he talks about ramping up military support. He's saying that, uh, that, that, that Russia has the right to use nuclear weapons in local conflicts on a first strike basis, calling for an even larger mobilization of the Russian population. Stress the war will only end when Ukraine's Nazism has been 100% eradicated. I mean, you can see when you read remarks like this, why there are certain people in the intelligence community in the West who are concerned about what a Putin ousted might mean, however bad things may be at the moment. So I just wanted to touch a little bit on that because his remarks, whilst they won't come as a surprise, I think it's significant drawing attention to him and how these are the kind of people that Putin is surrounded by. There are many, maybe people who are calling for further escalation in Ukraine. And and that, as I say, should be and it is, we know, uh, a concern. And just one other thing in the sort of diplomatic space, um, Don was talking about what the EU have been talking about in the last 24 hours. And one other thing that came on top of that is the EU has pledged new sanctions against Belarus over their support for Russia. That's also according to um, Ursula von der Leyen. She, uh, they've said they're going to impose new sanctions as, it, as part of their strategy to keep pressure on Russia, to end its war in Ukraine and extend measures to those countries that are supporting Russia. And I'll read the direct quote. We will keep pressure on the Kremlin for as long as it takes with a biting sanctions regime. We'll extend these sanctions to those who militarily support Russia's war, such as Belarus or Iran. So again, just an example of how... Uh, 
the EU is continuing to be robust on this and put pressure on Belarus. But I think Belarus are going to have a, 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 an important part to play in the next phase of this war, which of course is why Russia have been working so closely with Belarus in terms of military exercises and things like that. And as I've said before, there is some concern that Belarus may be a launch pad for another asc- a, a, a offensive on Kiev, if indeed that's even possible for the Russians to do. But nonetheless, it is being speculated. So there's all sorts of combina- conversations happening around Belarus at the moment. And actually, I think it's something that will be really good for us on the podcast to cover in more detail. So if there are any uh, professors of Belarusian studies listening, uh, do get in touch because I think this is something that I certainly would like to cover in more detail. But uh, to steal Dom's line, I will take a pause there. Thank you for that, Francis. And yes, as Francis says, if you see yourself as an expert, don't hesitate to get in contact with one of us on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. Turning next to our guest, Ukrainian comedian Anton Timoshenko, who is a repeat guest on the podcast. So you joined us quite early on in our podcasting venture. I wanted to touch on um, Zelensky's New Year's speech. What was your personal reaction to it? And what did your friends and family think of it? Uh, This was the moment when you understand... It was a good choice to choose an actor as a president because he is really good at speeches. Like it's, it was super nice speech, and we laughed sometimes, we cried sometimes. It takes like I don't know, like twenty minutes of this speech, and uh, just a strong speech of the strong man who you just when you see at the lens, it's so nice. It, not nice, but it's also interesting for me, for example, and for other Ukrainians to look at the Zelensky at his position now because you just see the development of this man, like how he changed uh, because of this war. And we all remember his uh, first speech on February 24th and uh, how he looked like at that moment. And now you see him very confident and very wise in, at his speech at this uh, New Year night. It, it's, it's really was close to the movie. Like his speech was really close to uh, some movie episodes from some kind of, uh, you know, Hollywood stuff. If we can look at the more broader picture of the stand-up scene in Ukraine and in Kyiv particularly, how has that changed since the invasion? I've heard that it's really grown because it doesn't require electricity during the blackouts. What's your take on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I already said on one of the interviews, stand-up is really like unique genre of show and it's really gross in Ukraine because of plenty of reasons. One of the reasons because it's really easy to organize stand-up because you just need one guy, you just need one mic, you just need one speaker. And if you have no light, you just need this generator or even you can... I perform even without light and without speaker, just with my mouth in small audience. And it was it was also fine. So in that meaning, from this point of view, stand up comedians, uh, they're like cockroaches, you know. So even after nuclear bombing, I am sure like a couple of stand up comedians will survive and continue to do uh, small open mics in a, in a shelters, you know. And yeah, after the, uh, the invasion began, and after Russian retreated from Kiev region, we start to do some kind of stand-up show and uh, stand-up grow because uh, for uh, some moments in last year, like for I don't know for three months, for four months, 
stand-up show were only shows you can uh, visit in Kiev because only comedians start to perform because for singer or for now for actors it's difficult to organize this they need a uh, singers need a big stage with a lot of you know like a lot of stuff and comedians just need a couple of uh, speakers and microphone so from this point of view the stand-up is really easy organizable uh, genre and it's also could be profitable even with this small audience this is first reason and uh, yeah it's it's changed uh, the second reason that a lot of the people uh, stop to watch russian content and try to find more ukrainian content and uh, and also the, uh, the important reason that humor is really important during war and it helps people to go through these difficult moments and a lot of people wrote me and my colleague that thank you for your work it really helps to save our mental health uh, so yeah, this is the reason. And, and how it changed? It changed really. Uh, stand-up stage in Ukraine become a part of show business because before, like 2021, I suppose stand-up was more like underground genre, underground culture. Now it's that's uh, <laughs> funny. That's funny that stand-up start to go from the underground during war. <laughs> uh, it's more safer to be underground now. So as you understand, stand up in win-win situation. I'm going to throw over to Dom now, who I understand has some questions for you. Hi, Anton. Dom here. Thanks so much for, for coming back on. It's it's great to hear you again. Uh, I'm glad to see, glad to hear you've still got the, uh, you've, you've still got it. I mean, you know, making jokes here, a win-win, saying the uh, stand-up is not thrives in the underground i think that's brilliant um and thank you for uh, for, for re- rehearsing your new material with us um i was going to ask as society more broadly in ukraine has got over that or no not got over that's 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 completely wrong but is working through the the trauma of the uh invasion since february 24th last year do you get the feed but do you get the feel do you get the feedback that people want jokes about the war or or completely separate are they are they are they after more of these things that you're coming out with now because it's so dominant or do they just want escapism uh, yeah people just want to funny jokes they uh, it's doesn't matter what about this joke it's about war it's about not about war it's about girls it's about uh, you know some daily routine stuff people just need funny jokes and uh, uh, I answered this question a couple of times, and I try to understand: uh, Does anything change? Like people tired about jokes, uh, uh, people tired about this, you know, military jokes or not? And I don't notice that. I think people just need some something, something funny. And uh, the problem is, some kind of comedians sometimes decide to use this military theme really uh, not professional. I mean. They just uh, talking about war stuff and do not improve it with jokes. They just discuss some kind of stuff about Russia. They just say, "Oh, Russians are idiots." <laughs> yeah. Oh, fucking Russians. Are you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Stupid Russians. It's not funny. It's just facts. Nobody wants to listen facts on stand up. So some comedians are a little bit lazy. That's why. Uh, their military jokes are not working. But in general, people people laughing just from funny stuff. Uh, I had shows, I had mixed shows with, you know, like this new material about war. And 
with very old material about my stupid life in university and people laugh the same at these themes so uh, you just need to be funny and you just need to wrote your joke and not be lazy this is uh, this is what you need to do thanks i mean a lot of, a lot of comedians will always say that that there can be no areas off limits for humor that's how humans work through many of the things that we have we have to have to do in, in in life so there should be no areas off limits and of course some some uh comedians to, are you know, push things right to the wire and, and offend and offend people i mean do you feel that there's like now in your situation any areas off limits talking about the the darker side of the war or particularly you know a great source of material for comedians are there are there domestic politicians so do you feel have you been making jokes about President Zelensky? Is there room for that kind of humor or or is it seen as as not patriotic to do so? No, you can do what you want. Uh, we have no limits in comedy. What kind of limits you can have in comedy if you have kamikaze drones attacks once in a week in your city? <laughs> no fucking limits. You can joke anything you want about Zelensky, about Poroshenko, about Joe Biden, about Putin, about anything. And... Uh, as I always said, I I'm a fan of this idea, no limits in comedy, and uh, to make sure you write normal jokes and to make sure you will not offend somebody, you just need to write jokes from your experience, and your uh, personal experience is the key for the best jokes in your stand-up comedy. It's always work better when you talk from your experience, and for example, if you if you were in Bakhmut, or if you were in Bucha, or if you were, I don't know, in Kherson, and you would uh, tell a couple of jokes about that, you can do it because you because you had this experience, you were there. If I never been in Bakhmut, probably I would not joke about that because I have no idea about what kind of experience I can get there. So from this point of view, just use your experience and joke about everything. And... Uh, as I see, my colleagues uh, don't really think about some kind of limits. Yes, we have some scandals in stand-up, for sure. We have also this canceling stuff. And sometimes the comedians can do bad jokes, and it's really painful, and they say sorry after that. But that's normal. That's normal. This, it was normal in stand-up even before war. So during war, for sure, you will do mistakes because the... Stand-up comedy during war is like a minefield. It's difficult to uh, go this, you know, this road of comedy and do not do mistakes because you try to, you know, you try to find the way to laugh about this. Probably it could be offended <laughs> for somebody. So yeah, you just need to be careful. But uh, I don't like to think about limits because when I start thinking about limits in comedy, it's become more difficult to write jokes and. It's already difficult to write jokes at war. And also if you add some other stuff like limits or like moral problems. Um, no, I think for now in Ukraine, we have this like situation when people uh, could be free in their thoughts because of the war and they can just say, okay, I'm sorry, this was my bad. I will continue and people will say, yeah, that's fine. It was your mistake. Go, go with the next joke. Hi, Anton. Really interesting hearing your perspective. I stole Dom's line earlier and he's stolen my questions, but I've got a couple more, if I may. And the first being, uh, you were talking about Zelensky as, uh, as as being somebody who, you know, there may be 
comedians who would feel very happy to joke about President Zelensky. And I just wondered that, you know, what is the significance, do you think, of him being a comedian? How do your fellow comedians see Zelensky? Do they see him as sort of a patron saint of comedy or do they see him actually as somebody who perhaps was doing a kind of comedy they didn't like. I mean, I'm very struck that when we're talking about comedy here in Britain, there are so many different types of comics for different audiences. And I just wonder, what what kind of comic as well was Zelensky? Was he, did he have mass appeal or was he somebody who actually was seen as a, as somebody who had a slightly more niche, smaller appeal for a certain kind of audience in Ukraine? It was a comedian who performed on TV and everybody can watch it like your mother can watch the jokes, your father, your granny. You know, like it's comedy for like everyone, massive comedy, mass market comedy, I don't know. And uh, his company, 95th Quartal, uh, they had some kind of monopoly on comedy market in Ukraine because they made these shows on TV, they made these films. Some kind of also some kind of other stuff on YouTube, and uh, he was super popular. And I, I watched Zelensky like in, in my uh, teenage age. I mean, I Zelensky was funny for me till uh, I think like twenty years. Like in twenty one, twenty two, I start to watch something else, something more I don't know interesting for me. And uh, Zelensky was just like a politician comedian for me. I can watch this sometimes, but not often because it was not so funny for me after like 2022 year because I was young, wild and free. I tried to watch something uh, like, you know, Stuart Lee and uh, other stand-up comedians. I think most of comedians uh, didn't like Zelensky humor. It was like too simple for us, you know, because he worked with the big audience and his aim was to make laugh like people who watched him on TV, these millions of people in Ukraine. And that's why jokes were like a little bit, uh, I don't know, not so uh, interesting for us, for young Yes, people. very much. It's really interesting because from, a, from a, a British perspective, I'm sure many international listeners will share this, that we haven't really been talking about the kind of comedy that Zelensky did. We just saw him as a comedian. But of course, in all of our respective countries, there are different types of comedy. And I'm not surprised what you were saying about how some Ukrainian comedians perhaps look down on Zelensky's brand of comedy. And I just find that nuance very interesting. Um, My other question was just relating to his drama, um, Servant of the People, which of course was a comedy series where he became president and then as a a school teacher. um, And then that obviously was the launch pad for his political career. I just wondered, how widely watched was that show? I mean, was this the predominant show in in Ukraine prior to Zelensky's election? Or was this actually quite a niche show that now people have sort of looked back, given what's happened since, and the thought, oh, maybe we should have watched that? Uh, I must say it was pretty popular TV series in Ukraine. Uh, Honestly, I saw only like first four or five episodes of first season. And when Zelensky won the election, I I didn't watch it till I, I just thought, okay, when I need to watch this series, I could see the real time movie right now. <laughs> you will not why this is uh, like when Zelensky won the election, it was like a big spoiler to this uh, TV series. So yeah, I just decided to watch news and be in real time. Uh... <laughs> it was popular serial in Ukraine. And a lot of people watch that. And uh, I'm as a political scientist. I, I studied political scientists and I wrote the uh, 
my uh, diploma my diploma's work uh, was about the humor in politics and I also I wrote this diploma in 2018 and then in the next year Zelensky won the election and I was like oh shit <laughs> I knew that I knew that he prepares this stuff for his election this TV series too and uh, what else are you asking me about sorry I'm just losing a little bit well, no, it was just, uh, you've more or less answered, which is how, how widely watched was the show and how... And super widely. How... Yeah, a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. A lot of people watch this stuff, yeah. It's a super popular move. Like, it's super... I think, I, I'm sure that somewhere in USA or in Britain, uh, this political scientist learned this, uh, this kind of move in, election, uh, in elections, how to use movies, you know, how to use uh, entertainment stuff to get more votes. Anton, just one more from me. You've been really entertaining this afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. And you're obviously very funny for us to listen to in English. I'm wondering how much you adapt your comedy and the jokes that you're telling to different audiences. Are certain things much funnier in Ukrainian than we would understand them if you translated them directly into English? Yeah, uh, this will be my challenge in this year because when I wrote my... I had a couple of YouTube videos on YouTube uh, with my English stand-up and uh, I I adapt only like 20-30% um, of my material and it, work, and it works in English. The other stuff I just uh, write. I just wrote other jokes. Like I just start to write new jokes in English. This is the only way because... All my, uh, I performed with my uh, special uh, Kidin. I had the special last year. I had a tour, a Euro tour and tour in Ukraine. And I understand I can use probably, I don't know, five or, or 10% from this special in English because of the context of the joke. So I'm, I'm, I was, I'm going to write new jokes. I'm going to, well, when I, when I wrote my jokes in English, I just, I tried to, uh, imagine myself somewhere abroad and try to understand what kind of news I can hear about Ukraine, what kind of memes I can hear about Ukraine. And I try to use only the most popular, you know, the most popular news, the most popular themes, or the most understandable things for people from other... Yeah, it's, it's that's really interesting kind of job. It's a new experience for me. You just try to be funny for everyone <laughs> and that's why you um, need to think really uh, in global you need to think globally in your comedy and uh, if you take some kind of theme you, you, you realize oh shit I can't use this game of words in English because it's it doesn't work and I couldn't tell about this experience because if I want to tell joke with this experience I need to explain the context for the people and this explaining makes my setup really um, wait uh, too much. And when you, your setup needs to be really easy going, it needs to be really light. Light setups brings more powerful punchline. So that's why uh, it's super difficult to adapt material. So I just need write. I just need to write new stuff. And uh, honestly, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure I will do it. I, I'm not sure I will finish this. This is my idea to write special English, but I'm not sure I will. I could <laughs> finish it because I need to... Uh, because the war is really changing thing. 
and uh, the mood of people changing very fast in Ukraine, in the world too. Some some kind of people already tired about this news from Ukraine, and uh, you can wrote joke with some kind of you know mood in your joke. But in the next month, it doesn't work because the mood change. People think about other stuff, other news, active phase of war. That's why all these things change very fast. That's why that's interesting to write jokes in English. Uh, this is my answer. <laughs> this is my answer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. And are you able to give us a bit of a of a taste of your of your material? Do you have any jokes prepared that you could tell us? Uh, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I don't know. After this joke, you can be stop helping Ukraine. You know. <laughs> uh, um, I could try. I I didn't translate this joke before this meeting, so I'll translate in ongoing. So I'm sorry if something will be not understandable. And if it's not working, I will just tell another one. Are you agree with that? Of course. This is joke that some people in the world can be can be asking why we help Ukraine, why we not help people in Africa. And I think first, again, yeah, we, we all know the the most important reason why we help Ukraine because we want to stop Russia. I want to stop this. Because Ukraine fight for democracy and all this stuff. But the one more important reason why people in the world help Ukraine is that Ukraine makes uh, war viral in social media. Because we made a lot of content of war. Only Ukraine make war so interesting in TikTok. Like we have a lot of TikTok videos with, you know, war, with these funny songs. And no other country in the world makes war so engagement in social media. That's why world helps Ukraine because Ukraine makes war interesting. Like we like, I don't know, we like Beyonce at war. Like <laughs> we do all this stuff. We hire an actor to be our president to make this war more interesting. Uh, our war is so interesting that Angelina Jolie comes to see this war. So that's why people in the world help Ukraine. And African people want to get some help. They need to do interesting TikTok videos. You know, you need to do challenge TikTok challenge. It's not. Uh, it's not enough to just to die. This is so sad, but in 2022, 2023rd year, it's not enough to just to be die. You need to die interesting to get people help. You need to die. Uh, you need to die that way that you can do TikTok challenge about your death. This is the way you can get some engagement in your problem in the world. Um, Something like that. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it's funny <laughs> for now. Uh, you can you can say. Yeah, I really liked your descriptor there of the the Beyonce of war. Well, yeah, something <laughs> like uh, like that. <laughs> I have just one more question, and that's we kind of touched on how the comedy scene has become a lot more popular and important to life in Kiev. I'm wondering if you're seeing different sorts of people, so for example, older people uh, drawn into the scene and trying to have their own take on comedy, um, simply because you know a lot of the younger people will be out serving, or um, it's also an op- sort of a well, this is my opportunity. This is when I'm, I'm when else am I in my life? Am I going to be able to do this? I'm wondering if you've seen lots of different kinds of people coming into the scene in a way that you might have not seen before the invasion? Uh, let me think. Uh, this is an interesting question because, as I understand, there are not so many new comedians 
And probably that's understandable because not many people uh, decide, okay, war, this is a nice moment to become a comedian. <laughs> so that's why probably we have not so many new guys on stand-up stage. Yeah, I, I, I just start to think, I don't know, maybe I saw like two or three new people at all. Like we have a lot of guys who was not popular, who were not popular before this stuff, but they become popular. But they uh, do com- they do comedy like for years. Um, so from this point of view, the uh, we have no change in performers in performers in stand up comedy in Ukraine, as I understand, because not so many people decide to do comedy at war. But also, yeah, I, I think it work more more on on the broad. Because a lot of the guys just uh, some kind of people go abroad because of the war, and they don't know what to do in other country, so they just found the community of people from Ukraine, for example, and start to do some kind of shows. And for example, they start to do stand up, and I and I see a lot of new faces of stand up comedy abroad, and they're completely not funny, honestly. And <laughs> about audience, uh, audience is really different. And we have um, a big range of people on stand-up shows. You can see just the kids. Sometimes I just uh, sometimes I have this message in my direct in Instagram, and people ask, "Okay, I'm only 16. Can I visit your show?" I said, "You can visit the show only if you have a sign from your parents." And these kids <laughs> came to my show with this sign from the parents, like, hello, Anton Timoshenko, please let our kids do listen to your jokes. And I was like, oh, this is fun. And also sometimes I saw this old ladies and old, uh, you know, people, and I'm not really sure they hear what I'm saying, but they're smiling. And it's just nice to see this big range of age on your stand-up show. Thank you for that, Anton. I think that's a really nice way to end the episode. Um, And I just wanted to, before we do end the episode, go to everybody's final thoughts. So, Francis, if I can come to you first, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, thanks, Claire. From the ridiculous to the sublime. Not that there's that much sublime about Chinese foreign policy, but anyway, you catch my drift. Um, I just wanted to touch on a very interesting big read or long read in the Financial Times today, which is talking about China's plan to reset both its economy and foreign policy as a consequence of its pretty precarious financial situation at the moment due to its zero COVID policy. And also, of course, as a consequence of its stance on Ukraine. And the piece is very interesting because they talk to certain uh, Chinese diplomats off the record. And the piece essentially argues that from a diplomatic perspective, the Chinese are seeking a fundamental reset in terms of China's priorities. They seek to rebuild some of their relations in Europe, which have been harmed by their support of Ukraine, and indeed to try and make sure that the consequence of that isn't that China is forced to essentially go its own way and uh, and face the economic and political consequences of that. Now, of course, this would align very much with how we understand Chinese foreign policy, which is trying to essentially play both sides, so uh, it, where it can benefit 
with from Russia, it will do so. Where it can benefit from the West, it will do so. China is very much thinking about its its own priorities first, uh, more, certainly above um, any other concerns. But as I say, this speak what what this piece really speaks to is the frustration within the Chinese Foreign Ministry with regard to the war in Ukraine. It quotes one official as saying Putin is crazy, and it goes into lots of detail about how China seeks to reset its negotiations with core countries and talks about some of the success it seems to have had in recent months, particularly with Germany and France, who don't want to see a further severance from uh, from China as a consequence of the war in Ukraine, that they still want to keep China in the fold in the hope of there being a, a, a means of, of perhaps winning them round to a more Western way of thinking things or just reaping the economic benefits of that. Now, of course, one can debate whether there's a naivety to that view, but nonetheless, I think it's interesting that this piece has been published and it goes into the interesting uh, details, as I say, on this. Of course, the other reason the West thinks it's so important to keep China close is they think they may be the key broker in, in negotiations at the end of this war to prevent Putin from doing some sort of desperate act involving nuclear weapons, but also in terms of making sure that, that Russia are kept in check with whatever is agreed. So that is the motivation for keeping China on board. But as I say, there is inevitably concern and there'll be those who are saying, well, the best way that China can act to keep on board with the West is not to keep supporting you, uh, Russia uh, at, at, in, in, in the ways that they have been. And indeed, I saw Sergei Lavrov was meeting with China's foreign minister and was saying how satisfied he was with that meeting. I mean, those are the kind of headlines that China are getting, which doesn't naturally doesn't win round many uh, Western foreign governments to uh, to China's cause. But anyway, I digress. The other thing I just wanted to mention in relation to this piece in the Financial Times is that it does speak, of course, to the opportunity that the West has to try and broker some kind of uh, deal with China that ensures that it's clear to them that if they do continue to support Russia in the long term, that there will be economic consequences for them, that there is is, I think, an opportunity here where if the West is robust to really make it clear to China that to continue down this road of, of playing both sides and, and, and certainly working more closely with Russia is something that will cost them economically and politically. And as I've said in the past on this podcast, if that's not done, if advantage is not taken at this moment to make that clear to China, then I do fear what the potential consequence of that could be long, long term. So it feels like a key moment. And as I say, in terms of adding a little bit more nuance and complexity to what's going on behind closed doors, I would highly recommend that listeners read this piece in the Financial Times today. Thank you, Francis. And over to you, Dom, for your final thoughts. Well, sure. Thanks, Claire. And um, thanks, Anton, so much for, for joining us today. I just want to read, if I may, a passage from a book that's out today um, and then just 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 comment on it because it talks about a, a lot of what a lot of what Anton's been been saying um, and I, about the morality and and the humanity in war. So here's the passage. Okay? Um, and I've changed a couple of the words. I'll explain why in a moment. But my goal, this is the passage, my goal from the day I arrived was never to go to bed doubting that I'd done the right thing, that my targets had been correct, that I was firing on an enemy and an enemy only, no civilians nearby. I wanted to return home with all my limbs, but more, I wanted to go home with my conscience intact, which meant being aware of what I was doing and why I was doing it at all times. Among the many things I learned in the army, accountability was near the top of the list. I had questions and qualms about the war, but none of these was moral. I still believed in the mission and the only shots I thought twice about were the ones I hadn't taken. 
as I fastened my bags and said, said my goodbyes, I was honest with myself. I acknowledged plenty of regrets, but they were healthy. They were the healthy kind. I regretted the things I hadn't done, the soldiers I hadn't been able to help. End of quote. Now, that's not my... As I said, that's not my words, and I've I've obfuscated um, certain of them, so you, um, to so you won't reveal it wouldn't reveal who wrote them. But I highlight it to show the moral consideration uh, towards the application of, of lethal force um, that that one should expect from a a professional soldier. And I'm talking about empathy for those in distress and responsibility for and and control over one's actions in the face of appalling provocation. And I just ask you. In light of those words and everything that, that Anton's been saying today, you know, do you think those words are written by a Ukrainian, a Russian, maybe, maybe a mercenary with a conscience? You know, regardless, they, they speak of an honesty and a grounding that I think has been lacking in, in the army that Putin has sent into the field. Um, I mean, we've all seen the atrocities in, in Bucha and Erpin and, and elsewhere. And what I, the point I'm making is that morality matters in war when lives are taken and sacrificed potentially to a greater degree morality matters potentially to a greater degree than in than in peace and that i think is obvious to the owner of the quote i've just made and that would be evident to anyone who um or that position would be readily apparent to anyone who who bothers to read the entire passage around everything i've just just said and not be led by the lurid headlines we've seen in recent days of 25 kills because the quote was written about firing on members of the Taliban. When I said enemy, I'd replace the word Taliban. And the book that was released today, you may have heard about it in the press, um, was Spare, and the author was Prince Harry. And I just think we talk about morality and we hear from Anton about what it's like to try and find humour in the darkest of places and to understand the human soul and, and hang on to our humanity in these places. And I think I'm not a massive fan, OK, but. I think Prince Harry has got a bum deal about this 25 kills stuff. And if you read the wider passage in his book out today, I think he's speaking as a professional soldier in an extremely difficult situation. And I urge you to go and read that passage. Thanks. Thank you very much for that, Dom. And finally to you, Anton, if you have any closing thoughts, you're very welcome to share them here or just tell listeners where they can find you online if they want to follow your work or recommend any other Ukrainian comedians that we should be checking out. Uh, my final thought is really simple. We will win this war if you help us. So please continue to support Ukraine and we'll keep crushing, we will kick Russian asses. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.